should be fun. Plus, we're going backwards because we already recorded 71. So it's like, oh, we have to go back oh. here. <laughs> okay. Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Yogasho Galio Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week we're kissing Cerise goodbye and Excalibur number 70, Crime and Punishment. We don't want to, but Bob Harris and Scott Lobdell, I mean Empress Lalandra, say we have to. Excalibur number 70 was originally published in October 1993, and the creative team is Scott Lobdell and Rochford Ashford on writing, Ken Lashley on pencils, Don Hudson, Rick Parker, Ajab Jemdijin, and Danny Taverna on inks, Steve Buccalato on colors, Lois Buhalis on letters, and Bob Harris and Suzanne Gaffney on editing. She comes to him dressed as a boy. And thus is unable to declare her love. But all ends well. How does it? I don't know. It's a mystery. You will never age for me, nor fade, nor die. Nor you for me. Goodbye, my love. A thousand times goodbye. Welcome back for the triumphant, or at the very least, definitive conclusion of Cerise's combined origin story and swan song. We have managed to blackmail another guest into doing our Empire's bidding, who I will introduce in a moment. But first, the usual crew. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I like talking about gender and sexuality in comics and pop culture in academic places and around the interwebs at places like Sequential Scholars, where Andrew and I are currently discussing classic comic strips. I am also Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager slash romantic advisor, and in that capacity, we're swiping left. <laughs> on this comic book i am joined as always by mav regale us with your heroic deeds hi my name is christopher maverick but you can call me mav and i'm i'm excited to talk about this issue this is going to be great i as i said last issue i'm looking forward to you know the return of fang who is now a new character <laughs> um we've got a female fang and there's going to be lots of intricate backstory i'm really looking forward to seeing what they how is there a female fang what can i learn about this character tell me all about her i am super excited to go in depth as as to the female version of Fang, who is clearly, you know, because teased at the end of last issue, clearly a through line throughout the 22 pages of this story that I am so looking forward to. Um, beyond that, uh, my name is Christopher Maverick. You can call me Mavin. I'm the co-host of this show and another show called Vox Popcast, where I talk about pop culture and cultural studies and in sex and gender and class and race and in your all of your favorite pop culture things. And I'm, <laughs> I'm a professor at the University of Pittsburgh. And that, that's what I do. That's my life. Hey, but I'm excited. <laughs> we don't, we, we, I, I didn't have a lot of time to write a, write a silly intro today because, like, I had done that, but then I got some timing messed up and everything. So, like, let's get into it. Let's talk about Fang. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> <laughs> All of my questions have to do with her. Absolutely. At least an hour and 15 minutes on Fang. Should be very manageable with the crew that we have with us. So Andrew, reacquaint us with your legend. I was really hoping that Mav would open with the reveal that even though he's always been characterized as gregarious and highly intelligent throughout our podcast, he's secretly been plagued by genocidal guilt the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> and that would totally make sense. 
No, that's that's um, a spoiler hi, for the end. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm Dr. J. Andrew Duman. I'm a lecturer at St. John's University and co-project lead for Sequential Scholars. I'm in that part of term where my existence is work. So let me just live vicariously through my kids and say that my 11-year-old daughter just won second place in a town-wide poetry contest. And we're very oh. proud of her. She rocks. Oh. Absolutely. Can we talk about that for an hour and 15 minutes instead? Because that sounds great. Get her on. Yeah, let's her up let's, let's her home. <laughs> Weirdly, the poem was titled Executioner's Song. Was it really? No, 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 no. I I honestly was like, okay, that's fine. Like, I mean, I don't want to (laughs) judge. Kind of dark for an 11 year old, but I was a weird kid, so sure. (laughs) I think kind of dark for an 11 year old would actually be a good tagline for Executioner's Song. I want to do a Photoshop of that with that that quote. (laughs) Our long-suffering but uh, joyful crew is joined this week by an old friend who will hopefully continue to be one after this episode. (laughs) The pod is honored to welcome back Dr. Michael Hancock. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. I will remind our listeners about your excellent credentials. Dr. Michael Hancock received his PhD from the University of Waterloo, where he currently teaches as a sessional instructor. Areas of research include science fiction, fantasy, superheroes, and video games. And he says, don't ask him about how long he's been playing Elden Ring. So, Michael, how long have you been playing Elden Ring? (laughs) 300 hours, but uh, only because I can't beat the beast clergyman of crumbling Pharaoh or Pharaoh Azula. (laughs) Isn't that always the way? Yeah, I have no idea what any of that meant. (laughs) I hear a lot about Elden Ring from various people and every little tidbit that people tell me about the game. I'm not sure if they're making it up to like mess with me or whether it is a serious thing from the game. So I'm feeling exactly the same way hearing these. It's got the best nouns, just the best fantasy nouns. Well, I would be happy to just hear you tell me the story of Elden Ring for the next hour, but let's talk a little bit about some Excalibur stuff. So we haven't seen you. I know we're going to talk about Fang. We're going to get there. But um, I thought I would ask you, Michael, we're not going to do your origin story. We did it back in our episode on Excalibur 11. And you also joined us for, what was it, Excalibur 30? God, something. I 30 something. It was the one with Silver Sable. Anyway, um, mm-hmm. we already did all of that. So I won't redo that something. here. Also a TV show that I enjoy more than this comic book. Yeah, well, yeah, that's very <laughs> fair. But, um, but yeah, you've read the dramatic turn away from the Davis era toward whatever we're calling this era, the Lobdell era for now. But uh, I'm just curious about your general reaction to that transition. If you have thoughts, uh, this, is a, this is a safe space to commiserate. <laughs> it's a real uh, clearing of the decks. Uh, it's like <laughs> when Davis really got into the swing of things, it was like, all right, it's time to finally five team members. That's a pretty lean team. We're going to expand. We're going to grow. And this is like, no, we're not going to do that. What if instead all of those new characters just slowly started fading away? Mm. Yeah, or just suddenly started fading away, which is something we'll deal with in the next issue. (laughs) But yeah, like, I mean, had you read, because I know you were reading through Excalibur kind of when we started the pod, like, had you read any of these issues before? Because I know you're the Beta Ray Bill of comics, Michael. So sometimes (laughs) the only comics you've read are the weirdest ones. But was this your first time encountering this arc? This arc, yes. My Excalibur reading, I I think I might have mentioned this on one of the previous ones, uh, was the second part of the two-part Wakanda storyline. Yeah, uh, okay. <laughs> and my next comics after that were about 110 to the end of the series. Okay. Uh, so, but this specific era, like pretty much the 90s, is just a blank slate decade to me until I start reading somewhere around Operation Zero Tolerance in the main line. So, I mean, like, what was your emotional reaction to kind of getting to that hard shift that we had in, in issue 68? <laughs> Like, um, I think my, honestly, my main response was like, oh, did I skip over something? She's, yeah. she's, she, she are? Yeah. She's a known alien? Okay. 
<laughs> how does it I mean you've read a lot of comics including a lot of not very good comics I mean how does it like relate to other reboots or resets that you've read does it remind you of anything else any even any other like disappointments in comics because like I'm just curious to compare it to stuff I'm so in the mode of Excalibur right now that I'm like is this truly worse than everything else or do I just lack context yeah it feels like it's coming in line with the rest of the 90s but also like it's not doing a very good job of that. No. It's like, what if we gave up our identity to be a pale imitation of something else? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Which is kind of what 90s comics were like, so <laughs> I guess it's an authentic experience. I have complicated thoughts about that, where I think I think that some imitations are paler than others. Yeah. <laughs> I guess, and this is, this is pretty pale, but... Um... Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, we can get into the specifics if you want. There's yeah. uh, plenty to plenty to gripe about in this one. And just like, I, I was struggling. I was struggling to make notes about this comic book and come up with stuff to talk about other than Fang, who we will talk about yeah, well, in yeah, depth. Yeah, you're going to have to go, you're going to have to go and give the, I mean, because she's on every page of this book. Mm -hmm. That's what I was promised mm -hmm. last issue. So I am very much looking forward to the, um, the recap that you are about to give us. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Let's get into it. So I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod or maybe skipping these issues, which is very understandable. If you do want to read them, DM us for a hookup. We're happy to provide. In any case, though, let's catch up with a plot summary. Excalibur number 70 opens at the Crag Prison, where Lady Fang is making good on the attack she promised in the last issue. Cerise says she doesn't want to fight, but in the great tradition of roadhousing it, she's so powerful she can't help ripping out Fang's throat. I mean, ripping off her jaw, <laughs> killing her instantly. What? Which is probably wait, wait, what? <laughs> she shone so bright and fell so fast we will always always remember her and her epic death all of that's probably fine except nightcrawler and the rest of excalibur plus the star jammers witness the entire thing meanwhile back at braddock manor kitty tells megan she's been patient long enough brian's been dead for almost three weeks now megan needs to get over it already because kitty doesn't have time to sit around watching her friend be traumatized and kitty defense she's leaving to watch another friend suffer in Ileana Rasputin who's currently dying of the legacy virus across the pond. Farron who is canonically a way better person than Kitty which makes total sense impersonates Brian in a last ditch effort to reach Megan but when they lock eyes he too falls victim to a catatonic state. Kitty throws up her hands declaring them both lost and leaves for her trip. Back on Crag Cerise tries to hug Kurt but he's cold to her murderous hands. Guards start to attack Cerise but Cerise's old friend Cryan who is some kind of being that enables body possession just go with it anyway Cryan becomes empress lalandra lalandra projects a vision of cerise's memories showing that she killed her crew to prevent further genocides she was going to tell lalandra about the whole thing but her pod was thrown off course into a stargate that took her to earth where she pretended to be a completely different not traumatized person for a while sounds a little bit like the dog ate my homework excuse but again just gonna go with it kurt says he's sorry for doubting her and they kiss but it's a goodbye kiss cerise is still charged with murder and mutiny but it's not all bad cerise can avoid prison by serving at Lalandra's side, helping her hunt down other genocidal regimes. Everyone treats this as a way worse punishment than it is, but in any case, Kurt and Cerise's relationship cannot survive this state of affairs. Cerise and the rest of the Shi'ar people teleport away, and Excalibur watches as Kurt sits alone with his memories. So Michael, we invite you on the pod for the best issues of Excalibur. I mean, what were your first impressions of this one? What particularly stood out? What are you particularly anxious to talk about? Fang, obviously, but... <laughs> Obviously. aspects of her or other things i've got two quips and one more serious thing uh <laughs> first farron finally came across someone who could out sulk him and his he just went to pieces <laughs> at the prospect uh second uh if there's one thing we know about cerise because we are told over and over again it's that she does not know what kissing is but we also know Lalandra does know what kissing is. We have we have Professor Xavier to attest to that, which can only mean that kissing is a tightly kept military secret in the Shi'ar <laughs> Empire. Loose lips sink Shi'ar ships. How interesting. I mean, yeah. Uh, the more serious one is that I recently reread an old, but I guess newer than this, X-Men series, X-Men Emperor Vulcan. And between yeah, the two, it, yeah, it, it really drove home how like the X-Family's relationship with the Shi'ar is a metaphor for like American global 
interventionism that like when the X-Men are on Earth, it's all like mutants and humans working together. But as soon as they get off their planet, it's let's overthrow some empires and team up with the space fascists. And uh, this, yeah, this I think is another step in the direction of the Shi'ar empire being just full of just absolute monsters of a group. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. I mean, we talked about that briefly before in terms of the inconsistency of the Shi'ar Empire. I mean, it's a huge frustration for me in terms of Marvel cosmic stuff, the way these empires are often just whatever people want them to be in whatever story, because uh, it's just frustrating because a lot of these characters like Lalandra, we know pretty well. She's appeared in a lot of comics and mm-hmm. just me Lebel having no them. idea. Well, yeah, <laughs> but like me just, I mean, having no idea, despite the fact that I've read her in dozens of comics, having no idea whether I'm supposed to perceive her as a fascist dictator or at least a benevolent dictator, because she's still definitely a dictator i have no idea (laughs) it's just like whatever whatever story wants us to believe which you know is useful for the storytellers but a bit frustrating if you're a reader that's trying to make sense of these worlds or like god forbid trying to like apply political allegory to these worlds because definitely one of the challenges (sighs) that i've been running out to in terms of finding out things to say about these issues is just like we're trying to apply like serious critical lenses like we're trying to think seriously about comics that didn't think seriously about their own stories it's such a losing proposition. I, I'm actually okay with the empires being conveyed, the empires themselves being conveyed inconsistently in that in real life, empires are inconsistent and countries are inconsistent, right? Like we, between between us, we are from Canada or United States and there are good things and bad things about each nation as with every other nation on the planet. That happens, right? So obviously there are going to be good things about the Shi'ar Empire and bad things about it. I don't like when Lilandra is portrayed inconsistently because she's okay, just one yeah. person. It makes sense to me that this is a this is a military power that spans a galaxy. The Shi'ar are going to have some bad people in it and they're going to have some good people presumably. I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. That's been like the, that's the story of the Kree, right? They're a good Kree and they're a bad Kree and they had their own little civil war going, which is the story of where Captain Marvel comes from in the first place. I I get those things. It's just I don't recognize who this person is that is Lilandra. I mean, it's like Labdell had never read one of her appearances before. This is this is nothing like what she ever is, even remotely. Not that she's a perfect person. She's always been inconsistent in that, you know, you root for her because she's Professor Xavier's girlfriend, but she is also kind of a dictator. And you kind of go, oh, well, you know, maybe you're just kind of doing a little bit of light fascism as opposed to your sister <laughs> who does heavy fascism. Like, that's mm-hmm. the story. Typically, that's not here. That's not this story. I mean, yeah, I want to talk about the punishment thing because I find it super weird. But yeah, I'll come to you, Andrew, for your first impressions, though, first. Like, <laughs> how are you feeling about this one? What are you particularly eager, if anything, to talk about? I think to me, it stands out for how little of a story it is in terms of like innovation sort of of what you were saying about how hard it is to um, you know make an outline to talk about this to me every plot point is predictable every character action is exactly what they would say if you like pulled the family feud audience in terms of what you think they would say and that makes it kind of worse than being bad it makes it like a like a non-story to me like a like a script written by a neural network except it's not even that because excalibur is a book defined by innovation and depth of character so we're not even getting an imitation of excalibur we're getting exactly what mav said i think it was um, earlier on something that's just an imitation of the you know baseline 1990s marvel comic you could take literally every member of excalibur out of the main story except kurt and nothing changes yeah i mean the main members of excalibur is and we talked about well yeah last issue the the, um the main the main characters aren't here they left behind the core team brian's dead in quotes rachel's there but she doesn't do much and then kitty doesn't go on the mission megan doesn't go on the mission instead we get or micromax and kylan who really i don't know a lot yeah, they're about, not there right <laughs> right there but and they're but they're they're at least on the mission and yeah. a bunch of people in Starjammer costumes because they're not like really being <laughs> yeah, i mean yeah. like like what do you know about what do you, i was gonna say what do you know about anybody but corsair in this story but you don't even know anything about corsair like the fact that he's scott's father not material to the story well with corsair corsair and specifically you could do something interesting with corsair and kurt and i think it almost tries to go in that direction like some sort of character contrast there as both like pirate analogs but 
it, it cool. doesn't get there. It <laughs> falls very far, far short of getting there. Well, yeah. And I mean, again, like, I don't know. My subject headings made no sense anyway. So let's just talk about it. But um, yeah, the thing where Cerise kills Fang and then Kurt is so appalled by this like he's never seen this before and like oh I can't even touch you and I'm like he's best friends with Logan like I'm just your best friend kills people all the time literally (laughs) all the time all the time and like not as much like in front of Kurt at this point in history admittedly he was kind of doing that since like Kurt left the team but like still (laughs) Wolverine's his like subtextual boyfriend and he's cool with it and like here like he's just so appalled I mean come on it's such an amazingly heavy-handed metaphor like literally blood on her hands yeah (laughs) which with a Shakespeare illusion that I know bothered all of us yeah. Kurt was on this mission where I mean we're I mean I made the joke about Fang, right? But Kurt was on this mission the last time. He's seen the horrors of war in the Shire Empire before. <laughs> like it's, it like literally everything about him. I'm like, why is any and like I know that we're alluding to that because we've got this Fang character. Like the entire reason she exists is, hey, remember this costume? So I don't know why allude to it to do a <laughs> A much worse story. Um, I don't think this is. I don't think this is a pale imitation of Marvel comics at the time. This is a pale imitation. They're trying to do an image comic. They they are very much trying to do a young blood. That's what this is. This is like a okay. I read the wonderful storytelling that is Rob Liefeld, and I'm. I think I can do that. And they are failing at getting to Rob Liefeld's level of storytelling. Now, if you've read the original Young Blood, which I have recently it ain't what's the word i'm looking for good <laughs> you know it's not, it's not like this is but like i i feel like that's what it, this is aspiring to but it doesn't even know what makes that work right like it doesn't know what makes the young bloods or the the wildcats which was a little better jim lee's book like none of these were particularly deep series in the beginning i would argue that before the 90s were over you got a lot more innovation in image than it is typically given credit to and maybe we'll talk about that someday today's not the day because this isn't it. This is literally going, we can just copy that style. Substance is irrelevant. They don't have any substance anyway. And then they don't even get the style right. The artists are not visually up to the standards of where Lee and Liefeld and Silvestri were. But and they're trying, these, right? Like you can see but they're a lot trying of Lashley to be. imitating Liefeld in the first five pages. Yeah. And it, it's, it's really, it's trying to do that thing but with the gusto of a of a 14 year old who's just drawing their first comic book and the artists Mm. are better than that like that's not where lashley is lashley is a better artist than this comic gives him credit for and Mm -hmm. and it just it's painful it's painfully just complete substanceless like hey cerise is gonna do a murder here because murder's cool right like that's what it is like there's no purpose to it other than other than that, they will just bring in a faceless character, Fang, somebody that no one cares about, just so we can say, look how badass she is, and then immediately kill her so that Cerise is badass transitively. It's cynical and lame and boring, and I have nothing good to say about it. <laughs> and it's just like the excess for like no purpose, too, is really represented to yeah. me by the fact that in one of these panels, Cerise has Fangs. Like, she's never <laughs> had Fangs before. It doesn't make any sense with her powers or or like anything why would she suddenly have fangs she just has fangs to make her look more vicious in this one yeah, panel and that's the only reason all right well let's talk a little bit about bad girls because that was something that i wanted to talk about because it's something that we alluded to in previous episodes and sort of mentioned that as a trope and stuff obviously we're all pretty familiar with this archetype but for the benefit of our listeners let's go to school about it a little bit like what is the bad girl archetype like where did this archetype come from what characters do we associate it with and like what are some of the elements of the trope mav i know you're gonna have lots of thoughts about it but i'll give you a first stab at it if you want michael what kind of characters do you associate with like the bad girl trope i guess to kind of pull from this series like the long-running saturnine subplot of the you know the girl who's trying to who has like the sexual interest of one of the heroes. Uh, she's secretly being duplicitous. She's got weird powers that lets her do Mac- Machiavellian stuff. 
yeah, that's the 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 kind of crafty femme fatale version of it. I think. Yeah, I was gonna say because I think I think about that more as a femme fatale, like within the superhero yeah. genre, and I think the bad girl is a little bit different in certain important ways. And I want to kind of drill down on that a little bit. But Mav, I know you're gonna have lots of thoughts about yeah. it. So so hit me with ask. it, Mav. Okay. Well, no, no, okay, it's okay. Sorry. You go ahead, Mav. <laughs> if you've got, I've written, go ahead. We'll come this back is like to liter- it. This is literally a good thirty, forty. <laughs> I know. billion pages of my dissertation. <laughs> so um, I have complicated feelings on the bad girl because I do think she gets a short shrift in the current state of comics criticism, particularly given how prevalent she was for literally this entire decade, but also to a lesser extent to earlier decades. So I would say her genesis is in the femme fatales of early pulps, but with a change, because if you look at your your early, your classic femme fatales, I don't even look at with pulps. I look at with characters like in the Maltese Falcon, where, you know, mostly they're actually just, you know, they're not really action heroes. They're mostly, they're just dangerous women. And a lot of times it's dangerous in a psychological way. They're powerful in a psychological way. They're manipulative. But then you get to comics and you get characters like Shana, uh, Sheena, Queen of, Queen of the Jungle, or um, like Phantom Lady, who are sexy and sexuality becomes parts of their powers. So it's not a power, but like it might as well be because like the story says that in order to be powerful in a masculine world, the woman has to be conventionally heterosexually attractive on steroids. So you end up with super buxom, sexy, sexualized women, very obvious in the Phantom Lady artwork of like Matt Baker and what becomes called the good girl artwork. And then the comics code happens and just quashes all that for 40 years um and then wait wait, wait. Can, let, let me let me just pause for a second for our listeners like what is the difference between good girl art and bad girl art because that yeah, is a commonly confused point right that's what i was gonna do I was gonna, okay. the good the good art like goes and it doesn't go away entirely i should i said for 40 years there is indie stuff uh vampirella comes up in this in this interval but then we get to the 90s and then you end up with what is trying to be a callback to the good girl art style however it becomes rather than glamorous it becomes explicitly sexualized and those are this is a long conversation about the differences but i think that's what what you're getting at here Anna. it it becomes purely gaze driven in continuously less practical and less and less practical ways to which the purpose is to be sexy first to look like you're in the throes of orgasm in every panel which blade epitomizes this and i think witchblade can be a story that actually is actually good in some ways beyond just the artwork but it becomes the first first and foremost the female character must present herself sexual sexually and then nothing else matters if it's a good story or a bad story we'll figure that out later and it literally just becomes sex and violence becomes the calling card for the 90s character and then you throw on top of that particularly with rob liefeld but with other artists as well you you throw on the less and less anatomically what people our listeners probably call the broke back or the escher girls or the you know hawkeye initiative (laughs) poses where how can i show my ass and my boobs at the exact same time in every panel so like i twist (laughs) like things like that start happening so those are the hallmarks of it and this is trying to do that and yet it's not even like i i think criticizing that for what it is is fine but i feel like this does even that badly like if there's a yeah. good to to that i think this is failing to hit that mark um you people might not like rob liefeld but rob liefeld is very good at being rob liefeld he is very good at doing <laughs> the thing that he does and it shows when someone doesn't make it and that's and this is not making it it does not have the aesthetic to even not like that's what i'm getting at and it, and it makes me go why why does this exist other than you thought that in the most cynical cheapest possible way you could just do the thing of you know the image guys all left because they wanted you know more control and more money so you so they left and now you're like well we'll just bring in some other people because the artist doesn't matter well guess what they did the artist mattered and this is proof of that 
Yeah. And I, well, I mean, just quickly, I don't think Lashley's like his art's not being given any help by the inks here, which are not a good match right. for him at all because, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to see better work from him on some future issues and the inks Much are, are Much a big factor. Work. Yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah, in terms of the bad girl, good girl thing, I mean, one of the things that I associate it with, but again, this is complicated because again, when you're talking about a character like Phantom Lady, Phantom Lady often gets referred to as good girl art, but there are so many, as you were saying, like hallmarks of the bad girl style like to me a good girl art style has to have a sexual innocence to it in terms of the female yeah. character isn't necessarily aware of her own hypersexualization whereas that so probably, there's like I mean, a, a, de- a denial yeah there's yeah. a denial built into the good girl I mean think about it as like sort of like the naive Marilyn Monroe character right who's so sexy right. but she doesn't know it right that kind of archetype whereas mm-hmm. the bad girl is like self-consciously sexy and aware of her sexualization and that's like a big change that we have and I mean that's a cultural change that has to do with the direct market and the comics code and all of those things but yeah it's really a change that we see in comics sort of in the mid 80s into of course the 90s with you know characters like Electra would be like sort of like a stereotypical example of the bad girl and there's a few things that go along with it as well in terms of the tropes and backstories of these characters like often not always but often they have origins that are tied to sexual violence and they become sort of rape revenge characters in some ways that is like often part of their stories which you know complicates the mix of sex and violence that we have here and I mean one of the sort of defining contradictions of the bad girl is her sexuality or her violence subverting anything right because Mm -hmm. that combination of sex and violence in theory could be subverting something because you know it's sexual Mm -hmm. power and it's like women being violent in a way that women are customarily (laughs) certainly not encouraged to be but you know customarily punished very severely for being i mean the idea of taking revenge through your sexuality in violent ways has an implied subversiveness to it that like makes the bad girl a complicated figure and jeffrey brown's talked very well about that in a number of his his pieces on bad girls but (laughs) the mileage on it always really depends on to me you know just when i'm reading these kind of characters of like how disruptive sort of that combustion of sex and violence is and sometimes when the artwork is like so hypersexualized that it almost becomes monstrousness there's a kind of appeal to that but I mean it just keeps coming back to like this fight with Cerise and Fang isn't that it's not extreme enough no. to be interesting and so right. it's not disruptive it's just tropey in a way that is oh pardon the pun but defanged a little bit from like some of the more extreme art that you know <laughs> love it or hate it at least it's interesting yeah I think there's a lot of stuff happening in there I, I think one of the big elements between the good girl and the bad girl is that Cerise's story is very much without agency right all the stuff that she does she had to do it also sets up Kurt her her love interest as the arbiter of her morality uh, so whether she's yep. good or bad it's up to him to choose and that's mm-hmm. also kind of removing that agency from her and it doesn't yeah. matter because she's gonna be we're never gonna mention her again I mean we are eventually but this is it this is we don't get another story this isn't like leading into anything it looks like it is but it's not this is just okay we're done for me i think one of the problems is and i I mean i made all the jokes about fang and then she's killed immediately this character shows me that she only exists for this fight right like the only thing Mm -hmm. female fang ever does in the history of comics is this one fight and it's like three pages just in service of showing that cerise can be a killer if you need her to be and why like that's literally my question for it for the entire thing is why this is not subversive because i don't even understand the point enough to disagree with it it's just there is no point there's nothing here right like i like i, I can argue for instance that i um i really like danger girl so a bad girl a bad girl book is danger girl which i actually very much enjoyed and i can argue why i think it's doing something interesting and other people very much could very reasonably say that it is derivative and just more of the same problem that this thing that that existed here i i can't even do that here there's there's just nothing to even talk about people would be like this is derivative and you'd go yeah and that's the end of the conversation like the fact that we've managed to talk about it this long amazes me (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I kept thinking, and it gets back to Andrew's point about agency. I mean, does Cerise's story serve Cerise? And I mean, clearly no. it doesn't in terms of her being turned into a completely different character to get her off the team. You know, again, it's her origin story and her swan song, as I said. But like, it's also everything that happens with here emotionally serves Kurt's story, right? It's like a fridging in that, that sense. No, well, I mean, it like, doesn't really, but ostensibly, no. <laughs> ostensibly, she is sort of like sacrificed in order for him to have feelings, which, you know, is kind of the definition of fridging. Is she? I mean, and no, Kurt I mean, I, it's like four I, lines. Well, that's, yeah, yeah that's my well, question. That's the thing. I, I, I agree that that's the definition of fridging. Is it even fridging? I know. Because I Kurt's know. barely in the story. I mean, like, I know. he's there. But, like, I mean, this is, yeah, a great Corsair spotlight. I guess right. if anyone, but. <laughs> that's that's what, that's the thing, right? Like this is not, this is not this is not Kyle Rayner and Alex and Alex being mm -hmm. shoved in the fridge because there, no matter how you feel about the concept of fridging in that you know the classic fridging story, it absolutely definitively did serve the story. Kyle's not Alex's, right? But there is a story there. Something happens. Kyle is a different person at the end of that story than he was at the beginning of the story. Kurt never mentions this again. This is irrelevant. Like it, it's it's meaningless. It is just a it's just this thing that happened. I don't understand why this is a three issue arc. Like it's the balls well, I mean, to like make three issues out of this story. Like let's be <laughs> real, it's happens. it's three issues so that Excalibur can relaunch with seventy one at the end of the fatal attractions crossover and try to get a sales bump i mean that is the reason this is three issues no, no, we're just pacing no, I, it out for that well yeah but i don't understand why do, i don't understand why we didn't just toss in like filling issues like it could have been know. anything like well, this, I mean, this is dumb captain britain disappears off page because and, and we don't talk, right and we don't talk about it because we're too busy nothing has happened in three <laughs> issues nothing Megan is sitting under the same waterfall that she was at the beginning of the story. She's not moved. Nothing's happened. Well, I mean, I wanted to talk a little bit about conventions of, of kind of romantic tragedy a little bit too. <laughs> I don't even know what there is to say about it because we kind of already said it in terms of like, does it serve Kurt's story? Like, does it do anything for him? I mean, I had to point out first though that... <laughs> Uh, Legion of X, which came out this week, it'll be like, yeah, it'll be the past Wednesday when this episode com comes out. Um, spoilers for Legion of X if you follow that book, but um, <laughs> Kurt's most recent, uh, <laughs> well, you know, alien, whatever, Araco like girlfriend <laughs> left him to become a space mercenary. <laughs> and this is the third time this has happened to him. <laughs> And it's just very, very funny because, like, first it's Cerise that also happens with Bloody Bess, and now it's happened with Zen, his new girlfriend. And it's like, so three times he's been with a woman for a short, intense period of time, and she's been like, Sorry, I have to leave for space forever to be a space mercenary. No one will know how to contact me. We'll never see each other again. But <laughs> like... I just gotta say, as a guy, this sort of thing just happens to us sometimes. I know, you, you wouldn't I know. understand. This is like the tragedy of, of being a man in America. Because sometimes your girlfriend leaves you to go kill people in space. It's a, it's I know, and like you totally have a girlfriend, but she's in space and nobody knows how to reach her or where she is at any given time. Oh but God. she totally exists. Like, oh totally. Is this, is this, <laughs> but no, because that's because that's also Lalandra, that's Gossamer. Is the, mm -hmm. is the space girlfriend killing people the equivalent of the Canadian girlfriend in, in X Men comics? I know, I know. <laughs> Maybe she is. Just the fact that this has happened three times is really hilarious to me. And the fact that that comic book came out this week is very funny when we're talking about this one. Anyway, let's go back to the present, which means the past in this case. But uh, but yeah, Michael, the romantic elements here, do they do anything for you? I mean, are you sold at all on the romantic tragedy that this comic is trying to sell us on? It's got the tragic kiss on the cover of Cerise in Chains. Is any of this working for you? All right, I'd like a quick uh, rant. So Please. the very end of this comic, uh, the caption, their lips <laughs> touch. What did Cerise always call it? A lip massage? Oh, Who is that for? Who does not know that she calls it that at this point? It's not Nightcrawler. It's like literally the one thing we have about her. Like it's not a it's not a good romantic moment. It would be at least a little better if that first caption just disappeared. I'm really Why is this question here? I know. 
Because it's like, it's trying to make us care about these characters. And to care about these characters and to care about them parting, you have to know something about the characters. You have to invest in some way in their previous relationship. And yet, <laughs> like, that narration is treating it like we've never met Cerise before this moment. Because, well, what did she call it? I mean, we don't remember. Who cares? <laughs> it's like, oh boy. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. I would like to analyze a little bit. Michael just mentioned the cover. Here's where Please. I'll where I'll say I will acknowledge that um again, working within the context of talking about 90s art and the the bad girl art style. I like and I noticed how I said that I like <laughs> the cover and the reason I like can you see the air quotes the reason I like the cover is because I'm comparing it to the panel that Michael yeah. was just talking about which the is interior. the exact same image it is it is the exact same drawing just redrawn so badly yeah and if you're doing this if this is the thing that you're going to do where the purpose i mean cerise is in chains and bound and you know with this one last kiss with nightcrawler and because it's a bad girl art image the male gaze is supposed to be important and if you're going to do this to where you are going to objectify her for this purpose the cover does it better like in every possible way um the kiss looks more sensual it looks like i mean this is dark and it's serious and at least on the strength of the cover i go huh wonder what's happening there like she's she's in chains is, is this you know it leaves me with questions questions which the book completely just do not live up to but at least it's got something going and i think comparing those two images where it is the good version of that and the bad version i think really kind of show you at least the idea that like there's a difference between doing this and going through the motions of doing it yeah, yeah. and i mean i feel like it's a good image to talk to too in terms of you know talking about objectification and gazes of course because you know we've talked so many times about some of those dynamics on the pod and you know like who is this for right like who's gay Mm -hmm. is being prioritized in whatever image and it's a very and the first sort of, i can say dude yeah 13 year old dudes can love that first photo and women yeah. who love and women who love romance novels like if you if you, this is a romance novel novel cover that you know and then the last one i don't know who that's for but at least i can say also, dudes on the, like, the cover on, on a purely like she didn't need to be chained she was going willingly yeah, yeah. <laughs> bondage is cool michael <laughs> that's it it's like bondage is cool for the kids because this gets us back to those questions of agency right and like whose story is yeah. this and who is the story for because you know so many times on the pod we've talked about the ways that davis sort of does equal opportunity exploitation right if there's going to be a sexy nightcrawler kiss nightcrawler is going to look mm -hmm. sexy in the context of that kiss as well whereas like in an image like this his whole body is blocked off so that we can right. prioritize the spectacle of her body right and it's complicated how an image like that works because you know think about a women's magazine you know like cosmo or you you know yes. vanity fair or like whatever right those magazines also have beautiful women on the cover to appeal to women you know as an aspirational ideal and that's very complicated how that works but like at mm -hmm. the same time i'm definitely personally very dissatisfied with an image like this in terms of my gaze and like it's not offering me anything and the chains oh, are part yeah. of it right because like bondage can be sexy but what is the bondage doing here it's sort of emphasizing her subservience to him he's in the powerful pose here he's like angled to be in control of the kiss she's not allowed to touch him and her entire body is a spectacle while his body is closed off by the spectacle of her body so it it's just like ugh. juxtaposes the chains with his tail which is yeah oh god that's right his tail is like going up her hair oh, yeah. which is <laughs> another detail of this image which okay i don't hate that part of it at least like they did something with that that's sort of something but yeah still it's just i agree with mad though like i mean the cover is that excessive image more successfully than the interior version of that image is i can agree on that right. point i will and i will agree with you if you are reading this as a woman then neither image offers you anything Right. Like there's no, there's no there's no agency. There's no like she is completely subservient in both images. But I feel like 
at the very least, as a you know, as a sexually frustrated thirteen-year-old boy, I feel like you can get behind the first one. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so that's so that's one viewer. I mean, like, and and gazes are complicated, and I'm always very I'm always very hesitant to just sort of address anybody's criticism who is this is bad because it's the male gaze. No, that's exactly. that's reductive. It, males are people, so you can have something that is that is just purely satisfying the male gaze and i think this is very good at illustrating that sometimes you're not even doing that sometimes you're saying here's a male gaze but we're not satisfying it we're just saying guys like boobs i guess okay i don't know <laughs> and, that, and that's kind of, and that's kind of what I, how I felt about it like the like even the 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 chains so on the cover is you know she's got these chains that she's in bondage and you know sure but on that later image like the chains don't work in the perspective of the image they're floating over kurt's hand and his fingers are going the wrong way I, like i don't know anything about what's going on here because because the comic just doesn't care it's like it's it's like it's gotten bored with itself by now well see one of the things about the male gaze though that makes it complicated and i think one of the reasons that we do go so often to the well of condemning the male gaze is that it's tough because part of the male gaze is that element of objectification and mm -hmm. for the types of images that I find sexy. I want the men I'm attracted to to look attractive, but I don't want them to be reduced solely to being objects because I'm looking for like an empathy in the embrace, right? So I mean, mm -hmm. that's where it gets complicated because I don't really like any image that just reduces one of the partners in the kiss to an object. And so that's where I agree that it's not bad to do gazy stuff. I mean, it's not bad to experiment with objecthood, you know, in a consensual way. But again, when you're talking about images of fictional characters and like the things that it's prioritizing in terms of treating women as objects, it does give me a little bit of pause just again, because when we talk about female gaze versus male gaze, it's not just an inversion. Like female gaze usually means that both participants have more agency and activeness because, you know, in terms of something like a romance novel cover that's supposed to appeal primarily to a female gaze, you don't see men reduced to like just being objects. They're usually still active, which is all sort of indicated by their gazes and poses and Often those more sorts of things. Women. Yeah, it's, exactly. It, yeah, so it, it's hard. And that's the complexity that's the complexity of it, right? That's why Yeah. So discussing gazes and the intricacies of them, this is like literally people do their entire dissertations on these, right? This is like this is somebody's entire body of work is just like working out these little details and you know <laughs> I'm basically doing it right now because I like know. otherwise I was going to say that's what I did issues. for part of my right. dissertation. <laughs> right. Like but but I mean but but I mean I don't think this book deserves it is what I'm getting at. Like I'm just oh, bored yeah. with this image. I was just going to say, coming to Anna's point, um, and, and Anna had mentioned this earlier as well, this is Cerise's origin story, and this is Cerise's goodbye. So when it comes to that gaze, there really is that contradiction of what that story should be in terms of her subjecthood. It just reminds me of that good Courtney story we had, right? That was sort of, in some ways, also her origin story in Swan Song, you know, back in Excalibur number five, well, four and five. Four and five, yeah. And it's so different if you think about a story like that and the way it really does emphasize Courtney's agency and help us understand her as a complex person extending from the things that we used to know about her versus what happens to Cerise here where she's just tropified and everything takes away her agency and it's it's funny to talk about it taking away her agency because i i honestly think some of the writers and we have a bunch of writers on this even though it's lobdell's like lobdell gets credit for the overall plot but we have a bunch of different voices working on this but i can understand how they think they're doing agency by having her become a murderer you know because that's where the bad yeah. girl thing is at its worst where you know agency becomes capacity for violence but that's not necessarily agency because it depends on the reason that violence is happening it depends on the motivations of that violence it depends on whether that violence is character driven i mean much like sexiness sort of the redeemingness or like whatever subversiveness of sexiness often depends on whether that extends from character or whether it exists just to exist if that makes any sense mm -hmm. do you think totally. they think they're doing good work or do you think they 
they think they're biding time trying to get to the reset. I don't think they think they're, yeah, no, I mean, I I, I don't think anybody cared about this arc legitimately, but, like, I can also think that they think they're making Cerise a badass. Like, isn't she doing badass shit here? She's ripping Fang's jaw in half. She gets more of a, like, proper quote, air quote propers. Uh, Like, the farewell is more existent than it'll be for all of the other second tier Excalibur people that are going to depart soon. But, (laughs) and in, like, I guess I could see someone going, well, at least Cerise got a proper farewell, but it's it's not. So that Courtney story that you mentioned, right? Like, if you go back to on our episode of that, it's uh, it's issue five. And if you go back to when we talked about that, we we sort of had the disagreement between Andrew where and I where you said you're glad she's dead and I pointed out that yeah. 30 years later this story breaks my heart right like just to read it I just like I fell in love with her a character I didn't really care about I fell in love mm-hmm. with her in those two issues and then they killed her and then reading it 30 years later it still hurts and that's good writing so Andrew's yeah. writing that respect like in that like it works because yeah. they made you care <laughs> right like no, but I mean like no I mean you're wrong for being a heartless bastard oh. who wants her dead but, but, <laughs> but, but, but you're right in that like the story makes you care about her which is the entire point to where you go oh my god yeah. that just tugs my heartstrings you know she didn't even get a chance to like have an affair you know which is what you're really hoping for but like it's weird like you're like oh you know she you know everything was looking out for her everything was coming up with Courtney and then they dis- disintegrate her and that's heartbreaking and this story you're like oh Cerise is going to jail alright I guess <laughs> I, mean, okay. I mean I I don't care at all I don't care about her anymore and I used to but or at least yeah. I wanted to I don't care about her I don't care what happened I just want this over and that's how I felt about it well you yeah. you all like dug into this pretty well in the other issues that this does to a large degree not feel like the Cerise we've been reading for right. a yeah. lot of issues and like it's it's just hard to like feel that bad over a character who like does not seem what we like the same person and, you know, we could say that to some degree about the Courtney story, except for, like, that changed Courtney for the better. <laughs> like, I think what we keep coming back to is this does not change Cerise for the better. The Courtney story's interesting. This one's not. I know. That's what it comes down to. This is just I not. It's, it's I just not interesting. Nothing happens. I just think it's so interesting, though, the way it's a good object lesson in the fact that you know, there are more caption boxes on, like, implied thought bubbles. We don't actually get thought bubbles, but we get captions that are Cerise's thoughts and stuff. We get so much more about her than we've had in any previous comics, and yet despite that, it's actually giving her less agency than she had before. (laughs) Which is just impressive in some ways to (laughs) screw that up so badly. But uh, let's talk about the conclusion a little bit because I just uh, this conclusion baffled me and it also bothers me because it's going to come up several times in future comics. Only once in Excalibur it's going to come up in the final issues of Excalibur. We won't talk about that right now in terms of where Cerise has been what she's doing but she also comes back in a later x-men issue and she comes back in mr and mrs x which we talked about briefly in the last episode but um my issue with this conclusion is that everyone acts like this is such an unjust punishment but she's not even really getting punished and i was honestly a bit confused by that because the punishment is she's going to serve at lalandra's side and hunt down other genocidal people in the empire wouldn't that be exactly what she wanted to do it was her job it's literally what she's supposed to be doing she got her job back she was punished by getting her job back yes she got her job back but also she's going to help reform all these injustices uh-huh. that she had such an issue with before and yet everyone's like that's so unfair and i was like she can't killed a whole crew of people i mean well, i get, get that she kurt. had her reasons but yeah. uh. she'll, she'll have to do this without kurt for yeah. reasons i guess the That's punishment, the punishment. Is that she loses her relationship um, i mean i mean why, 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 why kurt can't come along i don't know but like because he's got a comic book to star in That's i mean why. they can talk on subspace channels or like do whatever i mean it's just it's treated like this big miscarriage of justice and i was like this is absolutely the most fair and generous quote-unquote punishment that i could possibly imagine for what she did i don't know it was weird 
weird. I just was honestly confused by like the emotional beats of it, the way they're like, that's unfair. And I was like, you thought that they were just going to let her go? I mean, she has to make she recompense. Is a, she is her. a murderer, yes. I know. She is a yes, she much, much murderer. <laughs> There's a another like almost para- interesting parallel between her and Lalandra that Lalandra also like rebelled against a genocidal maniac of a ruler. But well, that's I don't know. Are we supposed to have that in mind? I don't think so. At least it would explain why Lalandra gives her this sentence. But I don't think there's enough there to draw that out any further. I think one of the problems, and, and I think we do have to put Davis on the hook for this as well, is that Cerise never really had a clear trajectory or motivation. She just kind of hanging around, right? Yeah. yeah and, and, and again, getting her origin story now as she's leaving, that also kind of screws it up a little bit. So it, it's hard to to wrap the character when we never even really knew what the character wanted. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely all of that context is like affecting my ability to invest in this goodbye kiss. Whereas, oh my god. Okay, very off topic, but I've been watching the 2000s show, the stars show Camelot, King Arthur thing. Oh, yes. I, remember that. I was I was hooked by the fact that Wikipedia described it as dumb but sexy, and I was like, oh, that sounds good. Um, anyway, I've been loving it. And okay. uh <laughs> Because I was watching that, I was like, oh, Joseph Fiennes is in it as sexy Merlin. And then that led me down the rabbit hole of like, I'm going to rewatch Shakespeare in Love. I haven't seen it since 1998. Mm. <laughs> it, is, it is not good. No. <laughs> I didn't think it was good no. when I was 15 and it continues to not be very good. But I have to say, <laughs> by the end of the movie, when they do have the farewell kiss, like when Shakespeare and Gwyneth Paltrow character have their goodbye kiss, it got me. I was sold on that kiss. Really? I was sold on that moment i i can't explain it it was just so tragic and it was played well and it was the only moment of the movie i was really sold on and then when i think about the goodbye kiss here which is characters that i do ostensibly care about from a story i do ostensibly love for me to have no reaction to it really hammers home how bad this comic book is shakespeare in love is not a good movie if you haven't seen it i mean (laughs) take my word for it yeah you you don't need to i mean this movie won academy award it won best picture i like had to look that up to like be like is that accurate i cannot believe this what were we doing in 1998 oh my god uh uh, i mean so this 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 i'll talk about it won best picture at the academy one best picture best actress best supporting actress for judy dench who's in the movie for 30 seconds i mean she's barely she's barely in it it wins Best Picture at the Academy Awards, beating... Double check Just that. look it up. I, I want to know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 1998, it wins Best Picture, beating Elizabeth, Life is Beautiful, Saving Private Ryan, and The Thin Red Line. Four films, which mm. are unabashedly all better. Saving Private Ryan is one of the best films ever oh made. Oh, my God. And, like, <laughs> and it's just like, oh, my God. Like, I have problems with the way the Academy does things often because I feel like the Academy can diss something just because it's a popular movie. And I want popular movies to be able to win sometimes. And I have other problems with the ways in which we judge art. And it's a very complicated show. I've literally done, like, four episodes of this yeah, on my yeah, other yeah. show. Go listen to them. That said, no. No. The fact that this one best. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is so um, there is a scene. <laughs> I like dumb movies. It is there dumb. is a scene where they are quoting lines of Romeo and Juliet to each other in the process of having sex, and like his <laughs> thrusts are paced to the rhythm of the lines. It is the <laughs> least sexy thing I have ever seen in my entire <laughs> life. <laughs> It is so, oh God. But I have to point out that (laughs) I was very surprised that Elizabeth came out the same year because I was like, wow, Joseph finds two defining Renaissance fuckboy roles in the entire same year. That is, that is a triumph for him personally. I support him in that. Anyway, very off topic. We clearly lost the thread of this comic book. I blame myself. I blame myself. Uh, Let's do final thoughts. We didn't talk about the kitty thing at all. It's probably worth ragging on a little bit. I'm sure it'll come up in our final thoughts. So let's go around the horn and do it. Andrew, final thoughts about this one. Time to get out your gripes before we move past this arc. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, just just to be an English major gripe, since we're talking Shakespeare, there's no goddamn way Lobdell has read Macbeth. (laughs) 
<laughs> so he, he read like the the cribs notes and probably wrote an essay on it in high school and just really wanted to impress people by referencing it but his understanding of lady macbeth is very entertaining yeah nothing to do with with the shakespeare play at all and you know i'm not a shakespearean but i was offended yeah. by both that and shakespeare in love <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, Mav, final thoughts. We're, we're quickly running out of opportunities to talk about Farron. So I just want to <laughs> note his plan here. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, I gave him a little bit of credit earlier in the arc where he was at least the one who cared, who was just like, oh, you know, maybe I'll give you a hug, Kitty. And maybe I'll stay here and watch Megan. And these were like these were like reasonable things to do for a character that is not known for reason. What is he doing? Like, your, your boyfriend died, so I'm going to make a mindless automaton of him so that you'll feel better and then it doesn't work and it's like yeah n- yeah no it's kidding. warlock all um, over again right but like warlock at least farron knows humans <laughs> like like what like like warlock is new to the planet like farron is i mean farron is like emotionally unavailable you know yeah like farron's got issues but he is aware of the like farron was raised with all old people he's met people who have died before this yeah. does not make sense for him and nothing about this like like it's not cute the way a couple of issues ago where he's like i order you not to cry no it's just that i like you and i don't want you to cry that is a beautiful moment by an emotionally stunted child like i get what he's going for this is just dumb i guess we'll do one more dumb thing with farron before we're done with him sure (laughs) that's like what i got out of that I mean, yeah, my takeaway from that was just like, wow, I mean, way to make Kitty, if possible, even more unlikable than she was in Excalibur 68. I just, (laughs) this was comical how unlikable it made her just. I mean, I already did my bit on it in like the issue summary, but just her being like, I'm so bored of like waiting around for you to feel better, Megan. I just don't have time for this shit. Seriously, I have to go. And then they're both Mm. in a traumatic catatonic state and she's just like, oh, they're lost. (laughs) She just leaves. (laughs) She's she's only not on the mission because they needed someone to babysit. And then she's like, I know. Bye. I'm just gonna And like I get she's going to Ileana. I get that part of it, but like and we get that Kitty's a bitch too. We've talked about that on the podcast before. But like this is like mean call. in no. a way that like... No, no, like this is where this is where you know you know other people, right? Like call Alistair or Die Thomas or mm-hmm. one of these other characters mm-hmm. that like you know but that Labdell doesn't remember that you know. Like literally make a phone call and say I've got an emergency. I've got to go to the States. My friend is dying. Can someone please go watch my friend who's sitting under a waterfall? That's what you do. You know, it's just reasonable. But the the way it comes off is that she doesn't call anybody because she's mad at her friends for being traumatized and sad. And so she's like, F them. And catatonic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're They're literally in comas. Yeah, it's kind of serious, but like, can they just get over it already? Oh my god, I've got places to be. It's just like, wow. I mean, like, I get that this might be someone's bad misreading of like teenage selfishness, but it it is a bad misreading of teenage selfishness. Um, Anyway, that was basically my final thought. So I will give you the last word, Michael. What do you need to gripe about that we haven't yet griped about? Hit me with it. A little more on the Ferran scene. Even the composition, I don't understand it. Like, he appears behind the Captain Britain. Okay, I was confused by that too. Is he he, like crafting an illusion? that he's walking into is he shape-shifting is this is this within his power set is that why he like freezes or is that megan's powers like what is going on there you know that doesn't happen infrequently in comics where comics are this graceful and complicated art of juxtaposition as we talked about many times when the fragments are combined in a way that doesn't make sense it really explodes your brain because you cannot make sense of the sequence because it does not make sense. And that was my reaction to that sequence. I was like, it just yeah. didn't make sense. Like it didn't make sense narratively, but also spatially and physically and practically, it did not make sense. I'm glad it wasn't just me. No one wanted to bother to turn back a page and see what they just drawn. Yeah. Oh, and one other gripe, Kurt has one thought bubble in this entire issue and it's the thought, hey, that old woman even looks like Lalandra now. Like nothing <laughs> about Cerise, nothing about his situation. It's like, in case you were wondering, this figure really looks like Lalandra. 
reader. Oh my god. I mean, worth it. Worth it. If you're going to give him one thought bubble to reflect on everything that's happened here, absolutely worth it. I love it. I was not born to live a man's life, but to be the stuff of future memory. The fellowship was a brief beginning, a fair time that cannot be forgotten. And because it will not be forgotten, that fair time may come again. So I think we will wrap things up there. No, no sword strokes letters page again. Uh, it'll be a while before we get back to it. We will return to it when we have it. It's for the Some, best. It's for the it, best. It's, it really it's probably for the best. I am curious <laughs> about the letters they were receiving, but um, but we'll catch up to it when we catch up to it. So Michael, thank you so so dearly for joining us. Um, I hope we're still pleasure. friends. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> so before we go, please remind, of course, our lovely listeners of all the stuff that you get up to if you would like people to find you online where can they find you and any work or projects or anything at all that you would want to wreck please do so you can find me on twitter at at person of con and i'll also put a plug for our uh old podcast uh three panel contrast where we compared yeah. uh, various comics that we thought had things in common and things in not uh, you can find that on podbean or wherever you get your podcasts. You certainly can. And all of the episodes of Three Panel Contrast, where Michael picked the texts, are always the wildest ones. He picked the mm -hmm. best stuff for that podcast. Stuff that I never would have read, that I almost always, almost always really enjoyed. <laughs> is Scrooge and Howard the Duck yours? That was definitely yep. his. Again, my favorite episode of that show is Scrooge and Howard the Duck. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I love it. And we missed doing Three Panel Contrast with you, Michael. But thanks for, uh, thanks for humoring us in a reunion here today. Absolutely. So next, not a dream, not a hoax, it's the X-Men, again but forever this time, as Excalibur gets folded for real into the X-Men franchise. For better or worse, things will never be the same again after the mega-sized Excalibur number 71, Crossing Swords. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our episodes. You can find those on the Vox Popcast YouTube channel or at our fabulous website. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur, or pitch yourselves a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter, at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week, and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Mav, for another tropetastic conversation. Thank you, Michael, for kissing off this issue with us. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. Amazed when it gets to the end, and I'm like, we recorded an hour and 15 minutes about that, but we probably talked about Shakespeare. <laughs>